I was the kid who would throw up and puke after every race. Like that was like my MO in high school. That's just what happened. I don't know why, but I took pride in that. Like as a young high schooler would, I'd be like, oh, look at me. Like I'm running until I puke. And I remember coaches and even teammates would be like, dang, Steve, you're so tough. But in my head, I was like, you guys don't know. Every single race, I'm thinking about, hmm, what happens if I step on that curb and then I can just tumble? No one would know. And I thought it was me and my problem for a while until I started coaching. The reason you have those thoughts of quit, drop out, etc., is because your brain is saying, this is uncomfortable. We don't know if you can do this. You might harm yourself. And because you might hurt yourself because we're pushing so hard out of the unknown, we're going to essentially force you to like have this devil on your shoulder that starts telling you to drop out because we are the brain and we need to protect you. And it's essentially this protective mechanism. So of course, most of us, not everyone, but most of us experience that, that, hey, I need to drop out. What's up, everyone? I'm your host, Mario Fraioli, and you are listening to the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Every week on this show, I try to glean unique insights and uncommon inspiration from a wide range of personalities in an effort to help you see what's possible through the lens of running. This week's guest, making his second appearance on the podcast, is Steve Magnus. Check him out back on episode 156 if you haven't already, as it's a good primer for this conversation one which centered around the subject of his new book, Do Hard Things, Why We Get Resilience Wrong, and the Surprising Science of Real Toughness. Now, I'll say this. Steve has been on a lot of podcasts doing promotion for his book, and I did not want to rehash many of the conversations he's already had to date. I can tell you that this episode is very different, and we covered a lot of new ground. Steve opened up about his struggles with OCD, which isn't something he's ever talked about publicly before. We talked about the idea of toughness and tough love, and how his perceptions of both have changed over time. We also discussed different leadership styles, what works and what doesn't, and a lot more. Before we dive in, a big thank you to New Balance for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. If you're looking for a workhorse to run most of your miles in, look no further than the Fresh Foam X 1080 V12. Longtime listeners will know that the 1080 has been my go-to training shoe for the past few years, and just when I didn't think that I could love a shoe anymore, here comes the Fresh Foam 1080 V12. This shoe is so good. The 1080 V12 has the perfect blend of cushioning and responsiveness. It's lightweight. It transitions smoothly. It has the most streamlined fit to accommodate a wide variety of foot types, and it holds up to heavy mileage week in and week out. The Fresh Foam X 1080 V12 is available in both men's and women's sizes on newbalance.com or at your local run specialty retail store. Check them out and give them a try today. This episode is also brought to you by Gooder, my favorite sunglasses for running, driving, walking the dog, and pretty much everything else that I do outside. Not only do they look good, they don't bounce, they don't slip, and they're polarized to protect your eyes. 
Best of all, they're super fun. I'm personally a big fan of the OGs, and my favorite colors are a ginger soul and Mick and Keith's Midnight Ramble. Gooders are also super affordable, with most pairs coming in at just $25 to $35 bucks a piece. So if you'd like to support me in the podcast, treat yourself to a pair or two or three, however many you want to get, of Gooders, and head over to gooder.com slash Mario, and use the code Mario15 to get 15% off your entire order. That's G-O-O-D-R dot com slash Mario and use the code M-A-R-I-O-1-5 to get 15% off your entire order. And remember, your face will thank you. Okay, that's it for the introduction. Please enjoy this uninterrupted conversation with one of the top performance coaches in the game, Steve Magnus. We're having this conversation at the very end of June, and you've done a lot of podcasts at this point because I keep seeing them pop up in my feed to promote your new book, Do Hard Things. And the last thing that I want to do here is rehash those conversations. So let's start with this. What's something that you haven't shared or talked about yet as it relates to the book? Oh, gosh. I've done so many of these podcasts that it's hard to even answer that question because they all kind of blend together. I think, you know, honestly, something that I, I, I really haven't touched on, like, my story on where this book even came from much, which is interesting. All right. Let's start there. So I've kind of, you know... Kind of, kind of give the 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 you know one minute summary of this, but I think I haven't do- dove deep. So, this book is has is really started years ago. It started all the way back when I was a kid, um, struggling with what I now know is OCD. It started that was always present because I had to wrestle that. And then it started in my own running career was where I was used to having OCD. So I was used to navigating crazy thoughts in my head. But then I got really good in running really fast. And I remember early on having thoughts of like, oh, I should quit this race. I should find a rock to step in or a hole to step in. And I remember during that time, I remember thinking like, gosh, Steve, like everyone thinks you're really good and tough, but you're so weak inside because that was my conceptualization of toughness at that time. It was go until I puke, right? Mm-hmm. And I would say those two things really started the origin of this book, even though I couldn't, I hated reading and writing at this that point, so it wouldn't have come <laughs> come around, but... It planted a seed where I always wondered, okay, how do we navigate difficult things? And then more recently, we're just flashing forward through all my life, is I thought about that a lot in terms of running. First as a runner of, okay, how do I navigate discomfort, these doubts, the fatigue? And then more so as a coach, because as you know, Mario, it's like running is incredibly mental. 
And I would coach people and I'd be like, oh my gosh, this athlete's ready to rock and roll. They're about to set the world on fire and then they don't. And often it was because of something mental or psychological. And I really wanted to unlock that that thing. So I would long thought of toughness or how we navigate discomfort in a sporting context or even in a personal context. But it wasn't until... And this is where I think the fruition of the book came out. It wasn't until I was years into my own whistleblowing experience, blowing the whistle, Nike, Oregon Project, all that good stuff, when I had to essentially sit down for the arbitration case and get grilled for hours. And I remember thinking, okay, I've got this. I've gone through this. I'm telling the truth. I'm telling my story. And just getting, you know, approaching that, sitting down and almost having like a full on panic attack and being like, yo, Steve, none of these strategies you used in running are working. (laughs) Like you're done for. And that really impacted me not only in that moment, but I also like carried that on and impacted the rest, like my family, my relationships, other things. And I guess the long story is... All of these moments in my life from growing up to athletics to, you know, blowing the whistle, they all experienced their own separate challenges. And growing up in the South, in Texas, as a diehard athlete, I was taught to just kind of put my head down and bulldoze through things. And through all those experiences, I, you know, maybe reluctantly, but eventually realize that that doesn't work very well that often. There's a lot that I want to pull out of that, but let's rewind all the way back to your youth when you got into running. How did what you now know as OCD manifest itself back then? <sighs> that's that's a great question. So I guess what I would start is right before running and the sense that so i guess to set the stage is i have i've experienced ocd all the ways as far back as i can remember like four or five years old i remember just and essentially the way i would experience it is through ideas of like harm or danger like i remember when i was five i thought if i didn't get in the bed at the like the same ritual same way that I was literally going to die. And that was my experience with it. And I had no idea what it was or if it was really strange or what have you. And again, living in the South at that time in the 80s and 90s, it was just kind of like, oh, we don't want our kid labeled crazy. So we'll just kind of tell him to deal with it and like support, you know, in the best way that it was ignorance, but it was support the best way that they could. So throughout like elementary school, junior high, I just kind of said, okay, this is like, I'm going to have these crazy thoughts and I just got to deal with them. But I didn't really know how to until I think running helped in that regards, but it also made things worse. So it helped because running was my first experience with running was like, oh, I'm having these thoughts to quit, et cetera. This is kind of like what I go with through with OCD, like just figure out how to deal with them the best you can. 
And that like helped give me, I think, some language or some uh, conceptualization for both parts of it. But on the flip side, it hurt because I almost like to think of it as I channeled a lot of my obsessive compulsiveness into running itself. And that now those thoughts of like harm, well, they were still there. Thoughts of like, I was almost felt like I was forced to run, not by anybody else. But to give you an example, if I had to take a day off after I got into running and was committed to it, it was like the world was going to end. Like I, I remember on vacations going, we'd be on a family vacation. My siblings hated me for this stuff. But, you know, we'd drive from, I don't know, Texas to Florida or whatever have you. And we just, like many families, my dad would be like, we're just pressing through, like, get there, get there, get there, long car rides. And I'd be like, I'd, I'd just flip out. I'd be like, if I do not run twice today, like the world is going to end because I was running twice a day at that time. So one I could control, I'd get up at like 5 a.m. and get the run in. But then the other I couldn't control because it was dependent on others giving me the ability to and space to do so. So I remember in several cases, like we'd get in at, I don't know, 11, 11.30 at night, midnight. And I'd be like, okay, I'm going for a run. And it'd be like middle of nowhere, or like I didn't know where I was. My parents didn't know. We, like we didn't have cell phones like that you could carry back then on on stuff. And it would, it would, it just felt like I had to do it. And if I didn't, again, some of those same compulsions would would come about. Before we go on, I think it's important to define our terms because a lot of people hear OCD and they think of the person who ties their shoes a hundred times or they wash their hands over and over again. And I don't know how many people listening to this remember, oh God, probably the, the second of three conversations that I've had with your co-conspirator, Brad Stolberg, now where he talked about his own experience with OCD. but why don't you define it for myself and the listeners here? Yeah, so I appreciate that because I think there's a lot of misconceptions here because often what we do is we see the the compulsions, right? The tie your shoes, wash your hands, all that stuff. But what it actually is, is it's almost like our brain, and I'm describing my specific case. There are variations, variations on, on OCD, various types. But mine is almost like, and the research backs this up, it's almost like having a hypersensitive alarm that goes off. And in my case, a lot of it is around like harm and danger. And then also like routine and structure. So if there's, think of it like this. If, you know, someone without OCD has a doctor's appointment or a meeting for coffee at 2 p.m. And they show up at, and they're running a little late and they show up at 2.03. It's not a big deal. They're like, ah, I, I'm kind of kind of late. For someone like me, especially growing up when I didn't have a good handle on it, if, my, if we showed up at 2.03, it would be like full-blown anxiety attack. And what happens with OCD is, that alarm goes off and what happens is you have that feeling and then the obtrusive thoughts that go with it. 
And that's the key part is those thoughts. So again, you know, to give that example, you show up late, thoughts start spiraling out of control. In this case, it's like, oh my gosh, my friends are going to hate me. They're never going to like see me again or whatever it is around that. Or in the harm case, for example, <laughs> you know, if I'm standing in, in, in the kitchen and I see a knife, my, my brain goes up, oh, danger, danger, danger. And then it goes to like, what happens if you, you know, accidentally stab yourself or someone? It just like obtrusive thoughts towards like that danger thing. It's almost like it get, your, your thoughts are sticky on stuff. And that's the key component because that often is what drives the compulsions, at least in my case. The compulsions can occur, but they're almost like this mechanism that we have to like deal with it. So for example, on, you know, the washing your hands, why does that occur? Because of the intrusive thoughts that occur re uh, related around to like germs and that kind of danger. So the washing your hands is just the compulsion to take essentially for your brain to kind of like fix that feeling and those thoughts. When did you recognize that these thoughts and behaviors were OCD? Were you diagnosed eventually, or is this something that you discovered for yourself through research? So I was diagnosed eventually, and um, well, way, way later. Um, but I first discovered it through through research because, like, I knew something was a little you know, different and strange and off. I'm like, at, at first it was kind of like blissful in a way. It's like, yeah, this, this thing sucked, but you didn't know it wasn't normal. So you just assumed like when I was growing up, I mentioned those thoughts of harm related to going to sleep. You know, I just equated it to like, oh, this must be what like really bad nightmares or whatever are like for people. So I just, even though I was awake, that's what I equated it to. But it wasn't until, you know, you start getting some awareness around this, especially like junior, junior high time, early high school, where I'm like, oh, okay, this is, this is, this is different. This is probably what this is. And really in high schools where I made the first connection of like, oh, I almost certainly have OCD, even though I didn't get diagnosed for years later. Um, and honestly, back then, it wasn't about dealing with the thing. It was more like, okay, how can I almost like hide this and not make it like, you don't want to be the person who's kind of crazy or weird or stands out. So I would have like some compulsions, but all of my, or most of my compulsions, I would be able to do not quietly or secretly but to a degree so for to get to put some concreteness around this i remember in high school for whatever reason like one of the compulsions that like soothed was like picking the hair off my knuckles so in high school i would literally sit there under the desk and pick all the hair off my knuckles why because it was you know there's actually some fascinating research behind this but essentially it it was a a some sort of compulsion to do that also caused some sort of, we'll call it stress or stimulatory response, which essentially got in the way 
of the stress response that I was having from the like obsess uh, like obsessive thoughts and stuff like that. So for whatever reason, like that's what I defaulted towards. So you you'd find like little tricks like that to be more discreet um, during that time period. This is fascinating to me, and I, I appreciate you sharing it because it is so personal. And speaking for myself, I can't speak for anyone else listening to this, hearing you describe just this part of your your story makes me think about my my own life as a fellow runner and endurance athlete, curious person. But I, I think back to my childhood. I've never shared this with anyone before, certainly not publicly. But I remember as a kid, I had this really bad dream about a lion being in our backyard and I went out to play and the lion ate me. And I was really young. And for the longest time, couldn't tell you why it started or how I snapped myself out of it, but it was for a long time before I would go to bed every night, I would just say no bad dreams a hundred times. And I would count it. No bad dreams, no bad dreams, no bad dreams, no bad dreams, a hundred times. And then I could allow myself to to go to sleep. So very sort of like compulsive behavior. And there are certainly other examples of that in my life, which we don't have to get into here. But it makes me wonder if people who experience OCD tend to be attracted to endurance sports like running, or if people who do endurance sports like running have a propensity for OCD type behaviors. And I'm certainly not anyone who could diagnose this sort of stuff, but just very like observationally in my own life. And then certainly as someone who's been around these sports for a long time and as a coach, I think there are a lot of strong connections there. Yeah, no, I appreciate you you sharing that story. And my solution was was very similar. I'd have like something I said and then turn the alarm clock on and off. I think it was like seven times. It was something very specific. But so that that that's again resonates a lot. But I think there is something to to that to a degree. Again, I have no research behind this, but I, I and I don't know which way the causality goes, but I think there is something almost that draws you towards endurance sports when this is kind of the norm for a number of reasons. A, I think because endurance sports are you. And it's like you control most of it. Yep. Right. And it's like every all the training you do, whether you're, how hard you push, whatever you are you're doing in the races, like it's you. It's you alone in your head trying to navigate all this stuff, and you're in control of it. And I think that links itself towards you know maybe individual sports more so than anything else. And I think also. You know, I try and look at things on the positive side. And I think, as I said, in some ways, OCD got in the way of running. But in a lot of ways, I think it made me able to do what I did in running, especially as I came to terms with it. Because what else is running except navigating this crazy barrage of feelings, emotions, and thoughts in your head that are often pulling you towards some sort of 
you know, in this case, maybe not a compulsion, but certainly something of slow down or quit or, you know, do something else. So I think there's some some heavy overlap there. Yeah, but on the compulsion side of things, I mean, they can certainly be negative and in your case, hurt your running. But in some cases, they can also breed consistency, which is important for success too. I mean, I think this is wild that we're having this conversation. So now I think back to when I was in college and I was living on campus in the summertime with my teammates, working a summer job, putting in the miles every day. I would come back and I would do this every day without fail and I would not move on to do something else unless I did it. I would come back every day and I would do 30 minutes. I had this routine that I did and it was on the dot of push-ups and sit-ups. And I did them every day. And that was great for me as a runner, but it was definitely a, a compulsion where like, there was no way that I wasn't doing it because in, you know, in, in my mind at the time, like I would have these intrusive thoughts of like, if, if, like, if you don't do that, then, you know, you like, you know, you're just not going to be a good runner type of thing. Um, and so I think that can be that can be beneficial, but it can also really get a grip on you to the point where you can't get yourself out of it and it eventually becomes sort of detrimental. Yeah, and you know, you're getting at a great point, which is that it's almost like this tricky balance. And this is what I, ca- I, I came to see is like, this OCD, whatever, and I think the 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 sports psychologist Michael Gervais commented on this once is that it can be kind of like a superpower. And and again, I'm not downplaying in others, but it does lead. I, for instance, I don't think I would have run whatever 100 miles a week, 90 miles a week through high school and college if I didn't have this kind of obsessive compulsive behind it because I needed. It was like your 30-minute routine. I was like, what am I going to do? Well, I'm going to get out the door every day at this this time, every evening at this time. I'm going to have these routines that are around this. And yes, I, I wanted to, but in some ways, like I had to. And you're also right in that it can, okay, that, that's great for consistency. It was really good for my performance. But at some point, you move from like, kind of balancing these, I want to do this and this I have to, to it almost goes more towards like, no, I need to. And if I don't, I'm in serious trouble. And that that's that's where it can be tricky because, you know, in, in part of my career, I, I probably should have trained less or done less of all the rest of the non-running stuff that I was similar to you. I had like a strength routine I did every every day and all those things that we know. And I probably would have been a better, faster runner if I just kind of chilled out on some of those at some time, but I couldn't. Yeah, it's it's really tricky. I mean, on another level, I think about the pandemic and when everything shut down in 2020. And we were all stuck at home for the longest time. At least I certainly was. And for me, I don't know that I've ever been so happy. And that's not to downplay the struggles that a, a lot of people had. But for me to be home and be in a routine where every day was about the same, I'd wake up same time, six o'clock every day, go downstairs, put on the coffee, take the dog out, get my shoes on, 
go for a run, like go through my day, day in and day out. And I did that for over a year on end, which is the longest that I've ever done it. And I was able to like kind of feed that compulse. Like that was, that was my compulsion. I, I was able to, to do that. And I felt very good about it. And then when things start to open back up again and there's opportunities to travel, I mean, I remember when Christine and I went on our first weekend getaway in 2021 after not having gone anywhere for over a year, it was, it was really hard. I mean, you start, I start having all of these like in, intrusive thoughts of like, everything's going to go to shit. It's just all going to, it's all going to fall apart. I'm like, I'm out of the routine and it almost makes you realize like, Oh no, it's good that in normal times, like I'm shaking things up because it prevents me from kind of getting obsessed with this, you know, this one way of, of doing things or getting through the day. Um, and it doesn't, you know, kind of like, feed would end up becoming consistent habits, but are also like compulsion sort of, sort of in a way I've never really thought about it uh, like that until we started this conversation. So, I mean, I'm, I'm really fascinated by it. And then the other thing that, that you said early on, and I have said this to other people, I don't know that I've said it on this podcast or publicly, every race that I've ever run since I got started in high school in the late 1990s, I have had thoughts of dropping out and I've, thought my way through it. I could step in this hole and roll my ankle or I could, I could slip and fall backwards. And, you know, that, that's easy for me to, you know, tell someone why, why it happened. What, you know, what, whatever it may be, every race doesn't matter the distance, everything from, you know, 400 meters all the way up to 50 mile that I, I did a few years ago. And the actual number of times that I've dropped out of the race is, is pretty small. It's probably less than 2%, but I just find that super interesting as well having heard you describe it that other people have had those those same thoughts because i always thought it was just me I'm like what is wrong like i'm i'm trained i know what i'm doing i've done this literally hundreds if not thousands of times i know that i can get to the finish line but i i want to drop out or give myself an excuse to to drop out it, you know i used to think the same thing and that's why it bothered me so much, especially in high school, because I took pride. I mean, I was the I was the kid who would would like throw up and puke after every race. Like that was like my M.O. in high school. That's just what happened. I don't know why, but I took pride in that. Like as a young high schooler would, I'd be like, oh, look at me. Like I'm throwing I'm running until I puke. And I remember coaches and even teammates would be like, dang, Steve, you're so tough. But in my head, I was like, you guys don't know. Every single race, I'm thinking about, hmm, what happens if I step on that curb and then I can just tumble? No one would know, you know? And that's, I thought it was just like me and my problem for a while until I started coaching. And I, re I remember this to, to the day because early on in coaching college kids, we'd always have these like team meetings and we'd discuss something. And, and I often started off with a question. And uh, that meeting, I started off with, okay, I want everyone who's ever thought about, you know, dropping out in a race to raise their hand. And that, you know, a couple hands go up and then slowly every, just about everyone's hand goes up. And then I'm like, how often does it occur? And most people, not all, but like most people would say very frequently. 
And that was very eye-opening to me at the times because, again, I thought this was, you know, me being messed up in my head. But I think in a lot of ways that's refreshing because, and it makes sense with both how OCD but also non-OCD works with how the brain works. And this is where I think it's fascinating because, and this is kind of at the heart of the book, even though I don't, I do talk about OCD, but not a ton, is that understanding the science behind the brain works with OCD also helps with understanding how the science with the brain works with racing. Because as I said, OCD is essentially alarm, uh, 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 alarm on steroids. Racing, we still have that alarm and it's heightened because it's a stressful state. So the reason you have those thoughts of quit, drop out, etc., is because your brain is saying, this is uncomfortable. We don't know if you can do this. You might harm yourself. And because you might hurt yourself because we're pushing so hard out of the unknown, we're going to essentially force you to like have this like devil on your shoulder that starts telling you to drop out because we are the brain and we need to protect you. And it's essentially this protective mechanism. So of course, most of us, again, not everyone, but most of us experience that, that, hey, I need to drop out. I didn't know that this is where we'd be going in this conversation, but I'm glad it's where we've ended up right now because I know that there are a lot of people listening to this who probably feel a sense of relief right now because much like when you spoke to your team at at Houston, people start raising their hands that they've had similar thoughts. I think there are a lot of people out there who, who have these thoughts and think it's just them. And because they're having that thought, they think, well, I'm just not that tough. I, I'm, I must just not be that tough. And where I, I want to take that is when did you realize for yourself that real toughness wasn't just what you had been taught growing up in Texas, power through, you know, go, 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 just kind of grin and bear it, and that it was something else altogether. In fact, quite the opposite of that. Yeah, I think that process started after my own failures in my running, because I always tried to just kind of push, push, push. And I realized that you know, I dig deep and sometimes there was nothing there. And sometimes just, again, bulldozing through backfired. And it was really during my process of, again, coaching that really helped me see this. Because when you're coaching people, as you know, Mario, you face all these different problems. <laughs> and it's almost like this puzzle you have to unravel. And I had been taught in coaching and like it's the workouts, it's the physiology, like know that stuff in and out. And of course that stuff matters. And of course it's important, but the problems I was facing as a coach weren't workout or physiologically related. You know, all these athletes, they would be in a very good spot and then, you know, something would happen. So <laughs> it was really in figuring out the solutions of like, well, how do I help these athletes? And then at that time, again, early in my coaching career, I was still running, just not competing. So I was in still very good shape. So I would hop in workouts and try different things. And like, I really think 
I was actually at my fittest in terms of performance in my early 30s uh, when I was training with the college kids, but never raced. Um, I think I was fitter than I was when I, you know, ran my fastest times, but it was mostly because I was like trying and experimenting and, and running next to these guys and gals to see like, okay, how can we help figure out and navigate through these things? And it really was that light bulb moment of like, oh man, like we've just got to figure out how to navigate through these things, which often isn't that push through, but like create that space so that that alarm doesn't go off or that we can deal with it instead of, you know, just being like, oh, alarm, I'm going to push away these negative thoughts and just hope they don't come back. Mm -hmm. I know that you write books not because you have things figured out, as you just described. I mean, the light bulb sort of went off for you when you were coaching and jumping in workouts with these kids that were under your guidance, but you write books because you want to figure things out for yourself. So in in that context, taking this just another few steps further, what were you trying to figure out with this book? A couple different things. Um, first, I had noticed a trend and it came with coaching. I think it was Brian Barraza, one of my athletes at Houston, who put it pretty succinctly. He said, Steve, I'm trying to have a calm conversation in my head when I'm running. And those that was one of those, oh, this is different. And you're really good and successful and doing great. So maybe I should listen to this and figure it out. And you get these different seeds along the way of like, oh, okay, this is interesting. And I think those seeds are what led me to write this book because I wanted to navigate not only for runners. Runners are, again, my people. There are people. I love them. I'm a runner. Um, <laughs> I wanted to help them because that's what I saw in, in coaching. As I was like, oh, there's a lot of people struggling with this stuff. But also I wrote this book, as I mentioned at the top, because of a couple different things, which is one, in my own life, I was struggling with going through, again, a, an almost 10-year period of whistleblowing, which I had to figure out, you know, pretty early on that, you know, I couldn't do my normally, hey, I'm going to compartmentalize this, ignore this, and I'll just continue to push forward my life where this big thing is hanging over me. Because as the years went by, I realized I just have to live with this because I have no control over it and I have no idea when it was going to end. And as I said, it took almost 10 years to quote unquote end. So that forced me and I was in the middle of going through that as I started working on this book, I think I started working on this book officially in like 2018. Um, so I was navigating this and it was really a, that, that moment and that not, a, a, not being able to compartmentalize it again was affecting my life. It was affecting my job. It was affecting my relationships with, uh, with my significant other. And I had to figure that out and that was really difficult. And then the last part that really pushed me to, to navigate this stuff is towards the end while I was writing this book, I kind of had an inkling that I would step away from college coaching at some point. And I'd seen a lot in the coaching world, both in high school and college, 
that often went against what I think really creates this toughness or resilience. And I wanted to see, hey, what does the science say? What are the top performers, the top coaches doing that might give coaches and athletes another way versus some of the more popular ways of what I'd hear from athletes who would transfer in or friends or, 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 you know, professional athletes on their college experiences or their high school experiences. And a lot were very good, but some were so negative in the sense of like extremely controlling coaches, extremely like authoritarian and punishment based, like just not good supportive environments. And I was always a believer of like, hey, like people thrive when they're in a good spot. So how do we put them in a good spot? And I really wanted to like unravel that and see, okay, does my inclination match with what actually occurs in the real world and the science and research says? As you were unraveling it, what were some of the biggest discoveries that caught you by surprise? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, one of the things that really caught me by surprise was this study that was done on um, on coaches and athletes in the NBA. And what they did was these researchers looked at coaches across a six year uh, six year time frame in the NBA, and they essentially classified them based on their coaching style. And if they were the like yelling obscenities, the hard ass, the whatever, the old school Bobby Knight style, they'd call them, I, I think it was authoritarian or maybe it was even abusive leadership. And they looked at what happened when players joined, like were coached by those coaches. And not surprisingly, after suffering through that, that abusive leadership style, their performance declined and they had an increased level of aggression when they played afterwards and they'd have like more technical fouls and negative fouls like that. But what was fascinating and eye-opening was the researchers then looked at the rest of those players' career and that downward shift negative in terms of performance and that shift upwards in terms of aggression, technical fouls, persisted for the rest of their career even after they were they were they'd moved on to another coach it had a lasting effect exactly and i think again it was a small thing but i'm like whoa these are the best you know basketball players in the world and this like just having this coach sometimes for one season like shifted their performance downwards for the rest of their career so you think about that in the context of youth sports or high school sports, or you mentioned Bobby Knight at the collegiate level, you can really screw someone up pretty early and it affects them for the rest of their life, the rest of their career, which to what you were saying just a few minutes ago is why this is important to get this knowledge out there, especially for coaches, but really anyone who is a leader of people, no matter your domain. Exactly. And that's where uh, my I had the same light bulb moment. I'm like, if this is occurring with, you know, 20 and 30 year old somethings, like, what about the impressionable kids or youth or teens or what have you? And I think that's where, uh, you know, I think we held on 
for far too long to the kind of Bobby Knight idea. And I largely think, you know, when I say that, people say, but but Bobby Knight won a lot of games. And my retort is always, you can win that way. But winning and creating like successful, happy, healthy human beings are two different things. And also there's a generational difference, not in terms of toughness, but there's a generational difference that, you know, I noticed when I interviewed people from that era and they said, Steve, you got to realize that was our only, like when we were athletes under that system, that was our only choice. It's not like, you know, one, one, one coach put it like this. He said, Steve, when I played college football, it was either I played college football under this kind of hard-ass jerk of a coach or I went out and I worked in the fields all day for my family to make money. So, of course, I'm going to put up with this and just because it's better than this over here. And just because we won some games doesn't mean that was the way, way it was. I largely sticked around because it was the best option I had. You look at today, now we have, again, way more options and all that good stuff. But again, that's part of why I wrote this book is not just for individuals, how do we deal with difficult things? But if you're leading, if you're coaching, if you're a leadership position in, in your work, is how do you get the best out of people for, you know, sustainable over the long haul and then also make them better people and not just, you know, performance driven. We've talked a lot about toughness in the sporting and coaching context to this point of our conversation, but how does it manifest in other areas of our lives? How are people thinking about and experiencing toughness outside of the athletic realm. Yeah, so I think it's there's some several fascinating pieces where it, it shows up. The the one that always intrigued me is the research on parenting, and um, it's fascinating. Again, I'm not a parent, but it's it's amazing because the research shows that traditionally often we think of like disciplinarians and authoritarian styles as like getting the best discipline, et cetera, like, you know, making our kids behave. But the research shows that that authoritarian style, that high expectation, high discipline by itself fails. Like it, it leads to worse performance, worse in the classroom, worse persistence in whatever difficult things. And actually most interestingly, worse discipline. It only works, you can have that high expectation, but you have to couple it with high support or what's called high responsiveness, which means you actually care. Your child knows that you have the best interest at heart for them. They know that you're on this journey together and that's what really matters and makes the difference. So <laughs> that's one example, parenting. That The same concept applies to leading everything else. Right. Yeah, that is the first thought that came to my head is I can certainly see that in a coaching context, but I can also see that in the business world. I could see that in a community organization. I mean, the, the same principles apply. It, exactly. And that's what you actually see is, and that's what's, what's so fascinating is, again, you write books to understand it. And as I would peel back a layer, let's say in parenting, I didn't go turn to research or experts in other areas. And it's like, Oh yeah, the same thing. This is true for CEOs and leadership in every position. 
You know, if you look at the literature and leadership, often we think, okay, like I've got to be the one in charge and they've got to know that I'm in control and look powerful on all those things. When actuality, the, the research shows pretty clearly that if you want healthy, happy, productive people who are going to, you know, be resilient in the workplace, you want to give them some sense of autonomy. You want to make sure that they feel like they can grow and make progress. You want to make sure that they belong. And then there was a fascinating study that was done by Google that said like one of the most important things to employee well-being and also um, resilience in the workplace is psychological safety, which is they feel secure in the sense that they can work hard at their job and if they, you know, they have the room to grow and mess up every once in a while and they're going to be okay, which runs completely counter to this like power control fear based model of leadership, which is often, you know, um, talked about. So, so thinking about like that leadership model, power control, fear, whether you're an executive, you're, you're a coach, parent, if if that's your model, in your research, is, is there a correlation that if a, a parent is that way, that they are the same way at work as a boss and they're the same way as a coach of, of their kids' teams? Does it sort of spill across all of these these different domains? Yeah. So there is a little bit of work that shows that it does um, <laughs> because that's your style of, of leading, right? And you actually see this often is uh, – Unfortunately, the example is youth sports, right? The over-aggressive, like, you know, I'm going to take control in the workplace and this is how we're going to do things is also often the parent who is on the sidelines yelling and screaming at the ref, you know, telling their coach to, you know, hey, you need to play my, my son or daughter this many times. And I would see the same thing coaching collegiately. I mean, don't get me wrong. I had some one, I had many, many wonderful parents. But every once in a while, you'd see the, again, unfortunately, often the like high driving, you know, executive or person who owns the company who would lead in this certain way, from my viewpoint, would also, you know, have those same expectations or that same hard driving on their kid. And it would, gosh, it would backfire so much. Yeah, that's all they know. Yeah, that's all they know. And it, it's, it's hard. And that's why, you know, <laughs> to me, it's not, it's not, I don't want to label anything as like, never do this. There might be times in your life where you have to, you know, kind of lay the hammer down. We all get that. Even as a coach, you understand that there's moments every once in a while. But to me, it's diversify your tool set so that you have the tools to deal with the situation and help in the way that you you know you can. And this again came very clear early on in my college coaching, you know, uh, profession is that I had to expand some toolkits because I wasn't reaching some of the kids in the way that I needed to. So I had to get better at, you know, interacting or, you know, solving problems. I'll give you an example, you know, off the bat, off the top of my head is the first time as a college coach, when I was, I was coaching women, the first time, you know, I had several just break down and cry after a race. I realized very quickly, I'm like, I don't have the toolkit for this. I don't know what to do here. 
mainly because this wasn't part of me or my team, you know, growing up, because again, you kind of have the, the manly, we're never going to cry, get dis- disappointed after races approach. Um, so I had to expand my toolkit and figure out how to connect and, 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 you know, work with them in the best way possible. Along these lines, I'm, I'm curious, how do you think about tough love? We hear that all the time as, as coaches. I mean, I had one of my athletes this weekend who ran the Western States 100, and he told me that he wanted me, us, as his crew during this race to show him tough love. But I'm, I'm interested in your thoughts on that and maybe how it's evolved over time. Yeah, definitely. So here's, here's what I think is that tough Again, there's the individual component to this, but tough love can work to a degree as long as we have that high degree of love or support or care at the right moments. If we overuse it, I'll give you an example. One former NBA coach told me, Steve, if I mother effing, you know, say that a bunch to my athletes all the time, you think that's going to work? No, it might work the first time to get their attention, but after that, it's gonna they're gonna zone out. He was like, if I'm gonna go, if I'm gonna pull that card, I better pull that card at the exact right time that I need it. And I I think that that kind of idea goes with this tough love idea is that yeah, it can be a tool in your toolkit, but you gotta know with who to put it on. And when it will work, you know, the way I like to think of it is, will it lift them up or will it just cause them to spiral down and cause more stress? And, you know, I had an athlete once, uh, a college athlete, actually, who requested me once. He said, Steve, it was a championship race. He said, Steve, this is going to sound weird, but I want you to like yell obscenities at me in the middle of the race. And I was like, you know, I that one what I normally did. And I was like, okay. And he's like, just for this race. And I'm like, okay, why? He said, it will snap me back into into things. And so for that race, I did. And it wasn't any and and it worked. But it wasn't like if I did that all the time, A, I probably would have got fired. But B, like it wouldn't have that snap me back in effect for this athlete because he'd be desensitized and he'd be like, what is coaching doing? If I did that to another athlete on the team, they would have been like, they probably would have freaked out and been like, Oh, coach hates me. I'm going to slow down. It doesn't matter. So it's again, looking at those moments and that individual characteristic that is really important. Yeah. It's very situational. And I also think something like tough love, you have to learn over time. I mean, much like you mentioned a little while ago about coaching college women for the first time, seeing them break down after a race, realizing I don't have the tools to help them with this right now. But over time, you you develop them. Uh, I think the same goes for tough love, learning when it's appropriate to to give it, whether the athlete tells you they want it or not, and then when to keep your mouth shut and to just be maybe a little bit more 
empathetic or show some sympathy, whatever it happens to be. Yeah. You know, it, one of the, the things that comes to mind is, is I outline this in the book, but it's a fascinating research study that they did on rugby players. And they took them after a tough loss and they had them essentially either be criticized or just like, you know, told what they did right after a tough game. And if they were criticized right after a game by, you know, a stranger, I think it was, cortisol levels go through the roof. Okay. They're stressed. It's not good. If they get criticized, Again, I don't remember the research exactly, but if they got criticized by a coach they weren't kind of connected with, cortisol levels go through the roof. If they got criticized by a coach they liked or a teammate they like didn't feel threatened by, cortisol levels stayed the same. They didn't get the bump. So to me, again, that tough love is it's not only the right time, Right, If we deliver it right after a loss versus a couple hours later, it probably has a different effect. But it's also the right person because if I, if I set the environment up right, then hopefully the athletes that I coach know that you know this is uh, out of a place of love and warmth and like wanting you to get better. So I'm going to receive it as something to uh, you know look at instead of receiving it as a threat that says like oh i'm not good anymore you're a loser etc which causes that cortisol response to take a bit of a pivot you mentioned a little while ago how you stepped away from collegiate coaching at the university of houston and i know just from knowing you in conversations that we've had offline you're actually not coaching that many runners at all right now is that intentional on your part is that surprising to you is it something that you hope will swing back in the other direction i'd love to get your thoughts on that that is a great question and something i've never talked about publicly so let's do this um it yes it is surprising if you asked me two years ago or even a year and a half ago i would have been like no way no way not this is who i am but what happened is this, is the whistleblowing thing, hopefully, fingers crossed, finally ended. And it's almost like this weight came off my shoulders where I was like, I'm allowed to like almost move to a new phase of life. And running will always be a part of that. And coaching is something that I love. And I think it will always be a part of that. But it, I'm not trying to prove anything. It's not, I'm not playing the game that 30-year-old Steve was. You know, 30-year-old Steve was playing the game in the sense of, I'm trying to coach a lot of really good people and be the best coach that I can and prove myself and show people that I can coach and do all that. I don't need to do that anymore. I feel very competent in my coaching, but it's not defining who I am anymore. So I love it. I just want it to be on my own terms. So what does that mean? I work with people who I enjoy working with and help people who I want to help get better in whatever that, that capacity is. But I'm also disconnected and not dependent on the running world because I'll be honest, there's parts of the running world that 
I hate. And going through that, again, 10 years of whistleblowing experience almost brought clarity on what I loved out of the running world and what I want to keep. And then parts where I'm like, you know what, Steve, like, you don't need to play that game. Like, you don't need this person or these people's, you know, approval or to satisfy this group so that you can keep getting athletes into meets or keep, you know, athletes where they can get contracts or these agents happy or whatever it is. Like, it doesn't matter to me. I have a diversity of interests. I appreciate you sharing that. And I'm curious if you view that decision to step away from collegiate coaching, but also just coaching a lot of runners in general at your age, in your mid-30s, when there are a number of people who would kill to be in your shoes, to to be a cross-country and track coach at a major university, to work with some of the best professional athletes in the world as a form of toughness in itself. Because the easy thing to do would have been to keep coaching at Houston, move to another school, decide you wanted to start your own training group. You can do that. You've got the you've got the cred to do it. And no one would have shaken their head twice at it. But you made a decision that I can safely say not many in your shoes would have made. And I think to me, from the outside looking in, is a is is a form of toughness. That's a that's a tough decision and you made it with confidence. I appreciate that, Mario. And and I just want to be clear. I mean, it was a very hard decision. I made it with confidence, but I was, it was very difficult because, again, my identity is absolutely wrapped up to a degree in running and coaching and all that stuff. And I spent years building credibility in that, coaching athletes to, you know, world championships and Olympic games and all that jazz that we we write on our resume. But it really was the awareness to step back and be like, okay, what am I trying to do? What do I want? And again, not this sounds, I don't mean this to sound negatively because I think running is a fabulous sport. And I think the pursuit of running and performing better is great. But I think that pursuit on an individual level is great. I think sometimes in the running world, we get caught up in not realizing that we are training to run fast, you know, laps around, you know, whatever, 12 and a half laps around a track or run a marathon for two and a half hours or two hours and 20 minutes. And, and the grand scheme of things that is important and can be valuable, but it's not the end all be all. And for me, I think with age, maybe I realized and I was okay with, you know what, I don't, Again, it's like playing the game as I remember thinking, because I was, I was in, you know, before I made the decision, I was being interviewed and one of the finalists for, you know, one of these uh, pro groups. And I was like, yeah, I was excited. And I thought, okay, yeah, maybe this will give me a good path. But deep down, I was like, "Ah, is this really what I want to do? And then shortly after that, I was offered like an a, a job in the NBA as a performance person. And 
a year and a half ago, I would have jumped at that because it's the NBA. It's the best athletes on the planet. Pays well, all that stuff. This was after the uh, running thing. And I would have jumped at that. But at, again, and initially I was excited, but after sitting there for, you know, a week or so and being like, this, this, isn't, this isn't what I actually want. This I want because the prestige and the, you know, whatever behind it. But actually, this isn't what I think I'm called to do. So in many ways, it was a hard decision, but it also kind of was some ways easy because like I'd been put in situations and then had to figure out what it actually was that I wanted to do. To keep with this coaching theme and go further down that line, I know that recently you started getting into what's called executive coaching and it's still very new for you, but it's not athletes. It's not getting someone to the point where they can qualify for the Olympic trials or try to go to the Olympic games or get on a marathon majors podium. And I'm interested in what pulled you in that direction to work with those types of people, which knowing you as I do is kind of outside of quote unquote, your domain. Yeah, and it's definitely outside of my comfort zone. So this this gets back to maybe the broader theme in my work is that I still work with some athletes. I still write books that are related to athletics and sport. But as we talked about in this, this book, Two Hard Things, it's much more than a sport. It's about life, business, leading, all of that, parenting, all of that stuff. And I think this move is also about this is I'm not going to leave running or athletics behind. But it's also working with people where I realize, you know what? Performance is performance. And what is interesting is if you look at the, you know, some of the executives or entrepreneurs that I'm, I'm fortunate to work with, they struggle with the same things that athletes that I was working with struggled with. And in many ways, it's similar coaching. But it's just a very different problem. And in this world, often people don't have the fundamental skills that sometimes we develop in athletics just because of the structure of going through youth sport to high school to college, etc. There's not that kind of structure in the in the kind of executive entrepreneurial world. So often it's like, doing the what I would say is the sideline coaching that I would do, you know, in in my collegiate job and helping people navigate the problems they were going through or not helping kids like set themselves up for the rest of their lives. And the problems are different, but in a lot of ways, there are many ways you're solving the same things with a different new crowd. And what I see it is, again, thematically is expanding my horizon of who I'm helping, which also expands my horizon of my like interests in applying these things. I appreciate that. I'd love to get your thoughts on this. I've only coached runners and I've been doing it to varying degrees for the past 18 years. And where I landed a couple of years ago is that my main job as a coach of runners 
isn't to write great workouts or to help them set a personal best to qualify for Boston Marathon or the Olympic trials or get on the podium at, at this big race. My, my main job as a coach is to help them keep things in perspective. And listening to you describe this new endeavor into working with executives and having heard you talk at length on this podcast, but also previous one that we did and our own offline conversations. That's what you're doing with the athletes that you've worked with too. And you've got to know your stuff. It's not to diminish the, the X's and O's of it. And, you know, it's, it's serious business, like telling people what to do from a physical level. But at the end of the day, our, our main job is to help them keep things in perspective because as, as you said earlier, and I think the overlying theme of all of this, like there's such a an important psychological component to to all of this. And you know we've experienced it as athlete as athletes. We've seen it as as coaches where training's gone really well, and you're like, they are ready to do that. Um, and then they they crumble for whatever reason. Or on the flip side, i've had I've had athletes and myself too, where, I don't feel like they've been prepped quite as well, or I don't feel quite as prepared, but mentally I'm, I'm in a, I'm in a good space and I exceed my expectations or my athletes exceed my expectations. And it wasn't the training, but it, it was kind of the, the mindset thing. But as, as coaches where, where I've landed is I've got to help them keep things in perspective at all times. If the race went really well, that's a certain perspective that they have to have. If, if it didn't go well, especially when it didn't go well, it's like keeping things in perspective, helping them problem solve. So the next time out that we can do it a bit better. And, and I've never coached executives, but I imagine like maybe it's less tactical in terms of like, okay, here's your, here's your training plan, you know, for the week. But in those like sideline conversations that you've talked about, just helping them think through and work through, problems you know here's here's the thing mario like you could do this tomorrow because it's it's the same stuff you just got to learn slightly different lingo but it's the same problems we're solving and i went through the same thing at, at every stage i'm not trying to downplay it you have to understand situations but it is i remember the first time i worked with a non-runner on some of this we'll call it perspective taking because i think that's brilliant and that's what we do um the first time I worked with a, a professional athlete who was a non-runner, and I was like, what in the world am I going to teach them about, you know, whatever team sport, you know, basketball, baseball, et cetera. And how am I going to get them to buy in? Like, I don't know anything about shooting hoops or hitting a baseball. But the second you start having those conversations with them, you're just like, oh, this is the same pattern. Like we're applying it in a different way. And like my anxiety, because I remember the first time I'm like, what, you know, my anxiety was through the roof because I'm like, I'm working with this athlete who's in a professional sports and I have no idea about this sport. I'm a runner. I'm a running nerd. Who cares? Um, but the anxiety goes away because it's the same pattern. And the same effect happens when you talk to, again, business leaders, executives, whoever, because it, it's all that pattern of we're human beings, and what we're applying it to is different. The, pro the individual problems might be different, right? <laughs> I'm not going to get in the weeds and tell someone how to run their business or how to you know, do some sort of analysis. But my job is the same thing as with athletes. How do I provide perspective and get them to start thinking in the right manner or right direction that is productive 
so that they can thrive instead of those negative patterns or habits, which put us in this place where they can't perform well or can't show up to do the thing that they're supposed to do. Last two questions to wrap this one up. And I want to bring it back to toughness. Is toughness purely psychological or is there a physiological component to it as well? There's a very large physiological component. And that's it's like the psychological and physiological combined. Um, I'll give you the, the example, the pure example, right? We'll go back to running. We are much tougher when we are fitter. Why? Pretty simple. Because you've proved over time that you can handle this physiological load so your brain doesn't sound the alarm early on. You know, in my many bouts of getting out of shape and then back in shape in my 30s, like that alarm goes off crazy fast whenever I'm coming back into shape. Why? Physiologically, I'm not there. The bands of like what I'm capable of have shrunk so that psychologically that alarm goes off a lot. So it's it's this unique combination where it's like a little bit of both that matters and you better cover both sides of it. Last question. Is toughness something that we can practice? Absolutely. Absolutely. There's it is a skill that and the wonderful thing is you can develop this skill just about any time that you experience any sort of uncertainty, anxiety, discomfort, or just urge to act. You know, tying this back to the very beginning of this conversation where I talked about OCD and the relationship to toughness. One of the reasons is, again, because although it's not precise, the brain areas related to both are kind of similar in the sense that we have this area that is our, our alarm kind of area, threat area. And then we have what I'll just simplify as kind of our rational executive functioning area. And normally the executive functioning area just keeps sending messages like, hey, we're okay, we're secure, keep your, keep your threat level down. But every once in a while, the threat goes crazy. OCD, it goes crazy because of the disorder. In sport, it could go crazy because of the, you know, you're performing on the biggest stage or whatever have you. And when it goes crazy, it essentially disables that executive functioning. So anytime we are training to deal with that anxiety or navigate it or that urge to stop or quit, or even something as simple as the urge to constantly check my phone, what you're essentially doing is training your brain to turn on that executive function. So it's like, oh, yes, remember, we're in control. We might have this urge to do this thing, but you, you're you in control. You have the choice. You don't have to do it. And that's a good thing. I appreciate that perspective. I've loved this conversation. If you haven't already, check out episode 156 of the podcast. That was Steve's first appearance on the show. And I can't thank you enough for joining me here once again. Thanks a lot, Mario. All right, that's it for this episode of the Morning Shakeout podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen in. Also, a big thank you to New Balance and Gooder for help making it possible. 
If you're looking for a workhorse to run most of your miles in, look no further than the Fresh Foam X 1080 V12 from New Balance. This shoe has the perfect blend of cushioning and responsiveness. It's lightweight, it transitions smoothly, it has the most streamlined fit to accommodate a wide variety of foot types, and it holds up to heavy mileage week in and week out. The Fresh Foam X 1080 V12 is available in both men's and women's sizes on newbalance.com or at your local run specialty retail store. Gooder sunglasses are my favorite shades to run in, drive, walk the dog, and pretty much anything else that I do outside. They don't bounce, they won't slip, and they're polarized to protect your eyes. Best of all, they're super affordable with most pairs coming in at just 25 to 35 bucks a piece. If you'd like to support me in the podcast, treat yourself to a pair or two or three of Gooders and head over to Gooder dot com slash mario and use the code mario 15 to get 15 percent off your entire order before we wrap this one up i'd like to give a shout out as always to my man john summerford he's produced every episode of the podcast and is the reason this show sounds as good as it does week in and week out Also, thank you to Chris Douglas for being my right-hand man and handling sponsorship sales, and Jeffrey Stern for managing the AM Shakeout social media accounts. I don't have a big team here at the Morning Shakeout, but these three guys have been crucial in helping keep things running smoothly here. Last thing, if you're digging the podcast, I encourage you to sign up for my newsletter. It's also called The Morning Shakeout at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe. And in it, you will get a collection of things that I've been thinking about reading and listening to lately that you might enjoy getting in your inbox every Tuesday morning. Okay, that's all I've got. I'm Mario Fraioli, and this has been another episode of The Morning Shakeout Podcast.